Welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and this episode is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. If you've not subscribed to the podcast, we encourage you to do so. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and our host site, Podbean.com. So if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe. Leave us some comments if you found the material helpful, and also share it with your friends so we can get the word out and build the program as we go. Today what I want to do is take some time and do a full-on book review of a book that we've mentioned several times in different episodes of the podcast. In the previous episode that we posted with uh, our interview with George Batty, as he was discussing many books dealing with the book of Revelation, uh, he mentioned one book written by an author named Sam Storms called Kingdom Come. And I want to do a full review of that book. I've recently finished reading this book. It's quite lengthy. It's about 560 pages. And it covers a wide variety of material. There are some pros and cons. It's a mixed bag, to say the least. And so I want to take some time and just do a full-on book review of this particular work. I want to start out by saying this is a moderate high to high level of reading. This is not an easy read. It covers a wide variety of biblical topics. And so this is more for an advanced reader audience. You need to have some background in Bible prophecy, the book of Revelation, uh, premillennialism versus amillennialism versus postmillennialism to really appreciate everything that's going on here. This is not what I would recommend as a first read. I would recommend this for a, an intermediate to an advanced state of reading. And so keep all that in mind. This is not a book for everyone. Uh, second thing, there's, there's both strengths and weaknesses to this book. And so I want to start off by talking about a couple of Sam Storm's strengths as an author. Uh, first of all, I feel like Sam Storms is extremely fair and honest in his presentation of his material. There are places where he readily admits that he does not have the answer, he does not have a good explanation of a passage, and I can appreciate that quality in a writer. Rather than trying to make something up or presenting something that's rather convoluted, he tries to be honest and fair, and I think he maintains that throughout the book as a whole. Another thing I like about Storms in his writing is when he is presenting an opposing view, he's very fair in the presentation. He'll tell you who disagrees with him. He'll give you references so you can go pick up that author and read him. And he's not trying to make straw man arguments just to prove his position. He's trying to be fair and interact with opposing views and present what he feels is the strongest case, that of the amillennial position. He provides for us what I would call the basic ingredients of a particular passage or view. And what I mean by that is whenever he addresses a difficult passage or a difficult view, he presents what he feels is the best position, and he also presents alternative positions that he's trying to interact with. So whether you agree with his position or not, he generally provides you with the basic tenets of other positions, including authors that you can go and read after to try to find a better answer or to understand opposing views in a better way. I really appreciate that out of him. He's trying to be fair in that, and you look for that whenever you're looking for a good author. 
Some of his hang-ups include that he is from a Reformed background, and so there are different occasions, sometimes in what I consider kind of weird places. He brings up his Calvinistic background, his Reformed doctrine of total depravity, once saved, always saved, and faith only. There may be some other aspects of Calvinism that he mixes in, but those are the three dominant ones that come to mind as I reflect back on the book. And the other thing that he brings up on occasion is his concept of a refurbished earth. Uh, I don't buy that position. It's very common today. Uh, as Sam Storms holds to that and injects it on several occasions, and we'll talk about that when it comes up. I want to just briefly give you a sketch of what I felt like his best chapters were, and then we'll talk about the problematic chapters in a little bit more detail, and then we will go back and discuss uh, chapters 1 through 17 in a little bit more detail. Uh, his best chapter, in my opinion, is the concluding chapter. It's just called The Conclusion, and I would recommend that you read that first. I wish I had done that when I read this book. I did not. I was reading it with a group of guys, and we didn't read the conclusion until the very end. And the conclusion is really helpful because he gives you a big picture view of his position throughout the entire book. So you can go there, you can read the conclusion, and you can understand what Sam Storm's position is throughout the entire volume. And I find that very, very helpful to have that condensed conclude, concluding read. My favorite chapters all in all were chapters 1, 2, 5, 14, 15, and 16. Chapter 1 deals with five principles of interpretation relating to biblical prophecy. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Chapter 2 is a definition of what is dispensational premillennialism and some of the major tenets and problems with that position. That is really helpful. We'll talk more about that momentarily. Chapter 5 deals with problems of dispensationalism and what he feels are some powerful passage in refuting that doctrinal view. Chapter 14 is a discussion of the binding of Satan. Chapter 15 is a presentation of amillennialism's view on Revelation 20 and the first resurrection. And chapter 16 is dealing with the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, Revelation 20 in particular. I thought those chapters in particular were very, very helpful and worth reading. I would recommend the book on the basis of those chapters. Now, there are some problematic chapters which... Uh, hinders me from giving a full-blown endorsement of this book, and I want to share those with you. In chapter 3, he deals with Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And in a nutshell, he criticizes dispensationalists for delaying the final week of that prophecy to a later date, and that one week encompassing a thousand years. Yet in his own interpretation of the passage, he takes the final week, breaks it in half, and has the final half week encompassing the entirety of the Christian era. I find it quite problematic to criticize one position for delaying the final week until the end of history, and then at the same time taking the last half of the week and making it encompass the entire uh, Christian era. For a better position on Daniel's 70-week prophecy, I would recommend that you read Peter Gentry's book, a kingdom through covenants. Now, there's one chapter particular in that book. It's a massive volume. But in, in one chapter, he deals with Daniel's 70-week prophecy, and that contains what I feel is the best material I've ever read on that particular prophecy. Another problematic chapter in Storm's book is chapter number four, where he deals with Daniel's uh, contribution to biblical eschatology. There, the problem is when he's presenting the view of the four kingdoms, from Daniel 2 and then the four beasts 
of you. He presents the four kingdoms as being Babylon, Media, uh, kingdom number three as Persia, and kingdom number four as Greece. And so he takes Media, Persia, and he splits that into two separate kingdoms. Where I find that problematic is in Daniel 2, verse 44, where it's prophesying about the church, and it says, In the days of these kings the Lord will establish, which is a prophecy about the church being established in the days of the Roman Empire. And so I find his view of the four kingdoms as quite problematic to understanding a crucial biblical prophecy. Uh, Someone I would recommend that you read presenting the opposite view would be Homer Haley, Jim McGuigan and Edward Young. They all three take the position that the first kingdom is Babylon, the second kingdom is Media Persia, the third is Greece, and the fourth is Rome. I think that's much more helpful. I would also note that two guys not to read are James E. Smith and Paul Butler. Uh, James E. Smith, who I typically really like, takes the same position that uh, Media and Persia are two separate kingdoms in the list, as does Paul Butler in the Bible Study Textbook series. So that material is kind of non-helpful. Uh, Chapters 7 and 8 in Storm's book are also uh, somewhat problematic, I believe. He presents uh, material regarding the Olivet Discourse of Jesus found in Matthew 24, and he presents basically the same position as R.T. France, James E. Smith, and Marsalis Kick. Let me begin by saying, uh, from that viewpoint of Matthew 24, R.T. France presents the best material. Storm's is okay, It's not as good as R.T. France. I think France is the best from that view. That's my personal opinion. Uh, That position takes the position that Matthew 24 has a definite break beginning between verse 35 and verse 36, and basically everything before verse 35 is referencing the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, and everything after uh, verse 36 is talking about the future judgment. I do agree that after verse 36, everything's discussing the future judgment. I don't take the position, basically, that everything before verse 35 is in reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. I don't think it's quite that simplistic of a break. Uh, For further recommended reading, the one that I suggest to people is a book called Jesus in the Future by Andreas Kostenberger. I think Kostenberger does a good job in presenting his positional Matthew 24 and also harmonizing Matthew 24 with Mark and Luke's accounts. And that's something that's unique to his book. Uh, If all we had was Matthew 24, I think you could have a a good case that Storms and Francis' position is the fully correct position, but whenever you try to harmonize that with Mark and Luke, it becomes a little bit more difficult. I don't think this is a major issue. I just think there's better material presented than what Storms does in his book. And so I'd recommend you read France and that you would read Kostenberger's position on the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, having said that, those are the problematic chapters in Storm's book, in my opinion. And so I want to back up and begin at the very beginning and tell you a little bit of background about this book and start looking at each chapter individually. And as we go along, I'll give you kind of a number ranking for each chapter on a scale of 1 to 10. Uh, the introduction is, is really fascinating and lends some credibility to this author, and makes you really like Sam Storms. Sam Storms grew up in a dispensational background. He went to college to seminary at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is like the heartthrob of dispensational premillennialism. His professors included John Walvrid and J. Dwight Pentecost, who are two of the most outspoken dispensationalists of their period. 
And he, he went to seminary with these guys as his professor learned at their feet. And whenever he graduated from seminary school, he didn't know that anything but dispensationalism existed out there. He was introduced uh, to an alternative position, and he began to work his way out of dispensationalism, ultimately becoming an amillennialist and uh, clearly quite grounded in that as he is writing Kingdom Come, which is an amillennialist alternative to that of dispensationalism. He notes in the introduction that there was one book in particular that had a major impact on changing his view, and the, that book was The Presence of the Future. The subtitle is The Eschatology of Biblical Realism, and this book was written by George Eldon Ladd. Again, it's called The Presence of the Future, The Eschatology of Biblical Realism by George Eldon Ladd. Now, George Eldon Ladd is a historic premillennialist, and if you remember part one of my interview with George Batty, he distinguished between the nature of historical and dispensational premillennialism. The basic difference is, historic premillennialists, though they believe Jesus will reign on the earth for a literal thousand years, they recognized that the church was the forethought of God, and they distinguished between the church and Israel. They recognized the church as being God's special chosen people at this time, not Israel. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, believe that Israel is still God's special people, and the church was set up just temporarily, and ultimately God will come back to redeem Israel. George Eldon Ladd rejects the concept that God is one day going to redeem physical Israel. And in his book, The Presence of the Future, he advocates the distinction between Israel and the church and the supremacy of the church in the current era of time. And so though Eldon Ladd believes in a literal thousand-year reign, which is wrong, he is a good guy in distinguishing between Israel and the church, and that had a major, major impact on the thinking of Sam Storms and causing him to switch from dispensationalism ultimately to an amillennialist position. So that intro is really helpful and endears you to the writer. He is a guy who is seeking after truth and following where it leads him in this particular area. Let's talk about chapter number one. Chapter number one is titled Hermeneutics of Eschatology, Five Foundational Principles for Interpreting Biblical Prophecy. So the five steps that it talks about are, number one, the fulfillment of Israel's hope as found in Old Testament prophecy and fulfilled in Jesus and the remnant, that is, the church. It's really important to recognize that Israel's hope has been fulfilled in Christ and the church. He goes all throughout the Bible demonstrating that, spends a lot of time there, very helpful material in this regard. Fundamental principle number two is that the Old Testament presents redemption as being a single act, whereas the New Testament represents redemption being a single act in two parts. And this is where he introduces the concept of the kingdom that already is but not is not yet fulfilled. As Brother Ron Corder would state, it has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. This is a really important concept to keep in mind when dealing with biblical prophecy and the dis distinction between dispensationalism and amillennialism as well. Dispensationalism claims that the kingdom has never been established and will one day be established whenever Jesus returns to reign for a thousand years, whereas amillennialism is arguing that it has been inaugurated, or it is currently, and yet there's a part of it that's not yet. It has not yet been consummated. Very helpful material there. And he'll come back to this later on in the book to discuss it in more detail. Uh, fundamental principle number three for interpreting biblical prophecy is that the New Testament should be used to interpret the Old Testament. This is really important when you're discussing 
eschatology or the study of the end times with either a dispensationalist or a hyper-preterist because they go to difficult passages in the Old Testament and try to use those passages as the foundation for understanding New Testament passages. Whereas, in fact, the New Testament passages are always, I wouldn't say always, but most of the time, more clear and fundamental for understanding difficult passages in the Old. So that's an important principle to keep in mind. The fourth fundamental principle of biblical interpretation that he addresses is that Bibles, Bible writers used current language or present realities to describe future events. Brother Doug Edwards, when he wrote his book, Drawing Water from the Wells of Salvation, does a really good job of explaining this concept. If you're not familiar with it, I would highly recommend that you get Brother Doug's book, which we have in our bookstore, and read that because the concept of using present realities or present language to symbolize or describe future events is a really a key concept. And it introduces along with it the concept of recapitulation eschatology. And what I mean by that is events in the Old Testament are looking forward to events that would come in the New Testament and will be fulfilled in a very similar manner. You have a re- recapitulation concept presented. The first, fifth area of Bible interpretation principles that he addresses is that of typology. He is very much opposed to uh, allegorical interpretations in the Bible, and so he's trying to present some rules and guidelines to go by in discussing typology. Basically, his main points of emphasis are, for true typology to occur, you have to have historical and theological parallels with escalation presented by Bible writers. So in other words, this isn't just me and you seeing similarity between two things, but historical and theological parallels being drawn by Bible writers with escalation included. Okay, he also states that Jesus is the parallel to the Old Testament person, places, and events of history. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament person, places, and events that were paralleling his life. So we have here the concept of escalation. And then number three, Jesus is the fulfillment of, of those Old Testament foreshadowings. All in all, I think his section on typology is good. It's not the best that I've read. If you want to read on typology, I would suggest that you read G.K. Beale's book, Handbook of the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. Again, that is G.K. Beale's book, Handbook of the New Testament Use of the Old Testament. This was his hermeneutic that he gave out to the writers who compiled the large commentary under the title of the New Testament's Use of the Old Testament. So check out that work by G.K. Bill. And then there's another book by a guy named Richard M. Davison that's called Typology in Scripture. This is referenced by most credible discussions of typology as being one of the uh, penultimate discussions. And so it's not an easy read, but I believe a worthwhile read if you want to discuss typology or study it in detail. That's Richard M. Davidson's book, Typology in Scripture. All in all, on chapter 1, I would give it a 9 out of 10 rating. I thought it was a a very, very good chapter and foundational for the discussion that lies ahead. Chapter number 2, I would give a a score of 9 as well, on a scale of 1 to 10. It's a discussion of defining dispensationalism. What he does is he stresses that dispensationalism differentiates between Israel and the church as being two separate and completely unrelated entities. He views the Israel, the nation of Israel, as being primary and the church as being secondary and temporal. And so the focus of dispensationalism is on Israel rather than the church. 
He has a good discussion about the pre-tribulation rapture that is fundamental to discussing dispensationalism. He is really helpful in this discussion, though I would note that in his fourth argument, he begins advocating a little bit of eternal security and Calvinism there. The strongest section in chapter 2 is his discussion of the dispensation chronology that he presents on pages 62 through 67. This gives you the whole layout of how dispensationalism views the second coming of Christ and all of the events that precede it and follow it, including the thousand-year reign of Christ and multiple resurrections, multiple judgments. That is really, really helpful to see. He also gives a discussion in this chapter about the difference between dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism. Basically, progressive dispensationalists don't make anybody happy. They have the dispensationalists angry with them, and they also have everybody else angry with them. But he does give a helpful discussion of that material. Chapters 3 and 4 deal with the 70 weeks prophecy and Daniel's contribution to biblical eschatology, which we've already talked about, so we won't discuss those any further, brings us to chapter number five. Chapter five deals with the problems of dispensational premillennialism. It has a great discussion on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which Storms believes is the strongest passage in refuting dispensational premillennialism. He uses this to combat the concept of a pre-tribulation rapture and the finality of death as viewed in 1 Corinthians 15 contradicts the dispensational chronology, and also the final judgment of 1 Corinthians 15 disagrees with the chronology of dispensationalism again. Some of this is really, really outstanding material. Uh, he addresses also passages in this chapter, including Matthew 25, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, the Gospel of John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29 and Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 23, to show that all throughout the New Testament, a single coming of Christ at the end of time, where he destroys death, uh, resurrects the faithful to take back to heaven, and destroys the unrighteous one time, rather than having multiple judgments and multiple resurrections, 1 Corinthians 15 is the clear passage through which we must interpret later passages such as Revelation 20. I would give chapter 5 a score of 9 out of 10. Really good chapter, one of my favorites. Chapter number 6 deals with the concept of replacement theology, which is an argument set forth by dispensational premillennialists. They claim that what amillennialists are doing is they have switched the promises that God made to Israel to the church, and that's not exactly what happens. In the Old Testament, there was a remnant within Israel who was promised the blessings, and the remnant becomes the church in the New Testament. So there is harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament when you understand the concept of the remnant. We do not believe in replacement theology. When you hear the concept of replacement theology, you're hearing it from a dispensationalist who is arguing against an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. I'll give chapter 6 a score of a 7 out of 10. Chapter 9, I give a score of 8 out of 10. It's a discussion of Israel's restoration in the book of Acts. It has a really critical point in explaining Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, where the disciples ask, are you at this time going to restore the nation of Israel? And shows that they were actually asking the right question, and the book of Acts is an explanation or the answer to that question. They didn't have the perverted Jewish understanding of the text. They had an explanation given by Christ throughout his 40 days after the resurrection. And this is really, really important material that a lot of our brethren have missed through the years, I believe. In Acts chapter 15, there's also another discussion that centers around that passage, 
where he points out Acts 15 as being problematic to the dispensational explanation of the restoration of Israel. So I would recommend that chapter on a scale of 1 to 10 at about a level of 9. Chapter 10 deals with Romans chapter 11 and the future of Israel. I thought all in all this was a pretty decent chapter. I'd give it like a 6 or a 7 on a scale of 1 to 10. But I would argue that Brother Alan Bonifay's commentary on Romans is better. It's more succinct. It's readable. It's more practical. I just get Alan Bonifay's commentary and read it. Though I think Storms was okay. In chapter 11, we have a discussion of the kingdom of God and the inaugurated but not yet consummated concept, that now but not yet issue. This is a bit of a mixed bag, and for that reason I give chapter 11 a score of 5 on a scale of 1 to 10 because it is problematic. Generally speaking, the concept that he sets forth is true. The kingdom is now here but not yet consummated. However, there's some problems in this chapter. He argues, number one, that the land promise was never really fulfilled in the Old Testament, and it will be fulfilled one day in the new heavens and the new earth. I believe there's passages in Joshua and Chronicles both that contradict that position. I, I did not find it convincing at all. Uh, the second problem was he believes in a refurbished earth, and that is brought forward in this chapter. And then the third problem is found in the final judgment section, where he sets forth his predestination and his once-saved-always-saved Calvinistic background. I found that very problematic, pages 352 through 354, and again, this makes it a very much a mixed bag. However, I want to say this. He had a really, really good section on a discussion of hell and eternal punishment. He defeats totally the annihilationist position, even conditional annihilationism. And he gives some references from D.A. Carson's book, The Gagging of God. Now, I haven't read The Gagging of God. I have it on my shelf. I've been wanting to read it. The references that he gives out of here really make me want to go back and read Carson on that because there are some excellent, excellent material set forth and a refutation of conditional annihilationism and full-blown annihilationism. So, mixed bag, there are some good points, but uh, chapter 11 is problematic. Chapter 12 presents the post-millennial view. On page 376, he has a really helpful list of all the post-millennial authors through history, and post-millennialism through the 17, 18, and early 1900s was extremely popular, and you look at that list and there are tons of guys that we know and have read after and quoted after through the years that took a post-millennial position. Uh, this was Alexander Campbell's position. If you want to hear more about the post-millennial position, again, I would refer you back to the interview that I had with George Batty, part one of that interview. He points out that the Achilles heel, in his view of the post-millennial position, is their optimistic view about the future of the church. They believe that the church is going to increase and grow and grow and grow until the majority of the world is converted to Christ, and then the Lord will return to take his church back to heaven, whereas the amillennialist position presents a pessimistic view of the future of the church. In other words, things are going to get worse and worse until God says finally he's had enough and he comes back and ends time and ransoms his faithful church back to heaven. So the optimism of postmillennialism is in direct conflict with the pessimism of amillennialism, and I believe with storms that the Bible supports more of a pessimistic outlook. I want to say this about his presentation of postmillennialism. He is extremely fair. In fact, he states on several occasions that he would like to believe the position. He's just not convinced yet. And I feel like he was overly nice. He went above and beyond to be nice to postmillennialists. I don't know if that's because he's trying to win them over to his position, so he wants to be fair to them, or that in opposition to 
dispensationalism, he views dispensationalism as very problematic, as being heretical in nature. And though he disagrees with postmillennialism, ultimately he doesn't view it as being near as problematic and he doesn't view it as being heretical so he can be favorable towards them. On a scale of 1 to 10, I give chapter 12 a 7. Chapter 13 is a discussion of the chronology of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of judgment in the book of Revelation. I would give this chapter a score of 8 on a scale of 1 to 10. I think it has some really, really helpful stuff. It stresses the parallels that exist in the language and the symbolism of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. He builds a very strong case in this chapter for the position of recapitulation, where you have the same scene shown from different angles and vantage points, a a retelling of the same events in different language from a different viewpoint. I think this is one of the strongest arguments against the continuous historical position and dispensationalism in the book of Revelation. He deals directly with preterism in this chapter and points out some of the difficulties that they have in addressing the recapitulation views as well. Chapter number 14 is a discussion of Revelation 20 and the binding of Satan. On a scale of 1 to 10, I would rank this as a 9, maybe even a 10. I thought this was fantastic material. It's the first of two chapters that discuss different issues with Revelation chapter 20. He presents that Revelation 20 is the strongest passage that historical and dispensational premillennialists can go to to prove their position. It centers around the discussion of what is the nature of the resurrection discussed in verse 4 and verse 5. Is this two separate resurrections or is this a single resurrection? Is the resurrection physical in nature or is it spiritual in nature? He also presents the amillennialist view of the millennium in this chapter where he defines the millennium as Christ ruling within the present dispensation with the souls of the martyrs in the intermediate state. He doesn't view the millennium as a literal thousand-year period, but as a symbolic period of completeness of the Christian era. This is the typical amillennialist position. He does a really strong job of presenting it. He shows that Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20 are not chronological or sequential in order, but must rather be viewed and understood as being parallel accounts of the same event. In other words, again, the concept of recapitulation. This is implicitly the argument against the continuous historical view as well. The continuous historical view has to understand these as two separate events, and Storms presents that they are actually one in the same event. Storms explains the binding of Satan as beginning at the crucifixion of Christ according to John 12 and Revelation 12. He presents that the binding is not the complete removal of any ability of Satan to cause problems within the world and within the church, but rather his inability to deceive all the nations. So in other words, the power of Satan is not completely eliminated, but is rather curtailed in a particular domain, the domain of deceiving the nations. He shows also in this chapter that Revelation 12 is parallel to Revelation 20 and that those two accounts must be understood as discussing the same event. Again, this is the concept of recapitulation. A very strong case is made here for the, for the position of recapitulation. Very, very good chapter. Excellent. Chapter 15 is another strong chapter. It's a discussion of amillennialism, Revelation 20, and the first resurrection. I give this a score of 9 on a scale of 1 to 10. Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6, according to Storms, is concerned exclusively with the experience of the martyrs in the intermediate state. I think that's an important concept. It was new to me. I think he made a good case for it. 
definitely worth some further consideration. In support of this view, he shows the parallels between Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 and Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, making a very strong tie for recapitulation taking place. He is essentially arguing this chapter against premillennialism and their belief that there are two different resurrections. Dispensationalists believe that in Revelation 20 and verse 4, the second half of that verse, and Revelation 20 verse 5, the first half of that verse, you have two different resurrections being discussed, and Stam Storms rejects that concept as I believe he should. Chapter 16 is a discussion of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 13 and chapter 17. He presents that the beast that you witness in Revelation 13, verse 1 through 18, is parallel to the scene that you find in the previous chapter of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 6, and verses 13 through 17. In other words, we have recapitulation taking place. These are not sequentially or chronologically uh, sequential events. He presents in this chapter that time, times and half a times of Daniel 7 is the same as the 42 months, the 1,260 days, and the three and a half years of the book of Revelation, and they are all symbolic for the entire church age in which we are now living. They are not referencing a length of time, but rather a type of time, the suffering age of Christians. He presents that the beast is representative of all that opposes the church, both individually and collectively, He presents that the mark of the beast is a symbolic number representing the shortcoming of the unholy trinity to that of God and the holy trinity. The number of the God in the book of Revelation throughout the Bible is the number seven. And so you have seven three times for the concept of the holy trinity and six three times for the concept of the unholy trinity. He also discusses in Revelation chapter 17 verse 7 through 18 uh, the seven mountains and the ten horns and their symbolic meaning. I would suggest for further viewing purposes, if you want to discuss some of this or understand more about it, to go and watch Brother George Batty's presentations on both the Antichrist and the Mark of the Beast that he has presented at the Preacher Study over the last couple years. You can find video recordings of those presentations on ChristianLandmark.com. I would really highly recommend that material to you. In this chapter, he also has what I feel are some non-helpful discussions of biblical numerology and gematria. I don't buy into the concept of gematria in the book of Revelation. And again, if you want to know more about that, you can watch Brother George Batty's presentation on the mark of the beast. The final chapter, chapter 17, is a discussion of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the man of sin. This has a little bit of helpful material, but by and large, not very helpful in my opinion. What's not helpful about it is he does not discuss the possibility of the Pope very much being the man of sin. I think that's a position that most of our brethren hold. I think there's some credibility to that position. Yet Sam Storms does not really address it, and I found that to be unhelpful. He doesn't give a positive definition of who he thinks the man of sin is. He's very vague and just quite frankly admits at the end, I do not know and I'm not going to speculate any further than what we've already discussed. He does present some helpful material by discussing some parallels between 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. I thought that was marginally helpful. He defeats the preterist position of the Antichrist referring to Nero. I found that to be very helpful. He also defeats the premillennialist interpretation of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. So there are some there's some helpful material presented in what 2 Thessalonians 2 is not about, but not really helpful material regarding what it is teaching. He argues that the early church knew both who the restrainer and the man of sin were, and I'm not sure he makes a fully convincing case of that position either. Ultimately, I didn't find this chapter very helpful. I'll give it a, 
a score of a 5 or maybe a 6 on a scale of 1 to 10. That's all the chapters that are covered. Again, by and large, I thought it was a helpful read. It definitely has some shortcomings. It's a little bit of a mixed bag in areas. But the six chapters that we mentioned at the beginning, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 14, 15, and 16, are very good and make it worth purchasing the book, even if you're not going to read the entire book. And again, I would say that recommendation is is conditional on that it's a high-level read and is a lot of work to get through. One thing that I found interesting as I was reading the book was that there is a video recording in which Sam Storms participates in a kind of three-way debate. The video can be found on YouTube. It's called An Evening of Eschatology, and it's a discussion of the differences between premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. It's really interesting to see Sam Storms live interacting with both premillennialism and postmillennialism and defending his amillennialist position. I thought he did an outstanding job, and that video really helped clarify and solidify some things in my mind regarding the difficulties of his position. So I encourage you to look that up, and if you find that interesting and helpful, you might check out his book. Uh, Thanks for listening today. This is a long episode as we did a long review of his book, but really we only touched the surfaces. I hope you found it helpful, and in the future we will plan on doing more reviews along these lines. If you have a book that you would like to hear reviewed, you're welcome to contact me and ask me to review it. If I have the book, I will consider it. If I don't have the book, I'll make a decision on whether I will or not, and then you'll have to send me the book for me to read and to offer a review, and I'll try to offer a fair and unbiased review as I have done with this book of Sam Storms. Be sure, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, to subscribe, share the podcast with your friends, and send us any questions or feedback that you have. You can send us feedback at christianresearcher at gmail.com. Thanks, have a wonderful week, and Lord willing, we'll catch you again next week for another episode. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.